right. Second Kings chapter 13 is where we are at tonight. Um, we're going to have our worship time at the end. I just kind of wanted to get into the word um, in the beginning so that we could just spend some time in worship at the end and uh, just see how the Lord leads us in the, you know, at that last portion to see what God wants to do in our hearts. And so chapter 13 of Second Kings, um, as we continue in our surveying, basically uh, one chapter at a time as we go through the book of the Kings in the Old Testament, um, I just kind of want to just bring you up to speed a little bit. Um, we are now like deep into the history of the kings um, as far as the nation of Israel is concerned as a whole. Um, they, were, they were one nation at, at, at one point. Uh, most of you guys know that. But again, as we got into Second Kings, there was a split that happened. And so when they were one nation, they had three kings, which happened to be Saul, the first king, and then King David, and then King Solomon, who followed right after David, which was David's son. And it would happen after the death of Solomon that there would be this, this split that would happen. And Rehoboam, his son, um, just kind of turned into a jerk, you know, and, and kind of alienated the northern kingdom. And then Jeroboam kind of stepped up to take over the northern kingdom. And so now you had two kingdoms um, come, come out of that one kingdom. And the northern kingdom, and you got to remember this because it might get a little confusing as we go through, uh, through it tonight, only because there's a lot of going back and forth. The northern kingdom is always referred to Israel, whereas the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. Normally, I've been just saying the northern, south kingdom, uh, southern kingdom. And so uh, as far as the northern kingdom is concerned at this point where we're at right now, um, they are the ones that separated themselves from David's lineage. Um, and we are now like halfway at the halfway point when it comes to their kings. You see, their kings would reign for 210 years. And so we've already gotten past a little over a hundred years for them. Whereas the southern kingdom uh, of Judah is concerned, they are continuing in, the, in David's dynasty. Except for those seven years where Athaliah, the queen mother, who happened to be related to the northern kingdom, when she was kind of reigning for a time. And she tried to destroy that David's uh, uh, dynasty as we, we've been sharing for the last couple of weeks. And we're about a third of the way through their reign of kings. You see, they would last for 345 years. The northern kingdom would end up having 19 kings once they split. Whereas the southern kingdom would end up having 20 kings. And it's interesting because in, a, in 210 years, they went through 19, whereas the southern kingdom in 345 years went through 20 kings. So the southern kingdom lasted some 135 years longer. And again, time is ticking. And this is why God continues to reach out to these, to these kingdoms, especially the northern kingdom. 
their, 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 their nation is going to be taken captive a lot earlier, a hundred some years earlier than the southern kingdom. And so that's why God keeps on reaching out to them. And as I've been studying this and just kind of looking at where we're at and what's happening, because we kind of move back to, into the northern kingdom tonight. He continues to reach out to them, even though I shared with you up until this point, every king that they've had has done evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of them. And God continues to, to reach out to them because God is gracious and he's compassionate that way. Now, as we move into the northern kingdom, we are going to mention four kings. Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, and Jeroboam II. Okay? Also, we're going to cover three kings or mention three kings from the southern kingdom. Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Along with two kings from Syria. You're going, Syria? We're not even in Syria. But they keep on being players in this whole scheme here. And so we're going to mention two kings from Syria. Haziel and Ben-Hadad third. Okay, I give you all these because... This is why it's called the Book of the Kings, because we're covering so many kings. And so in, in, in one chapter, one single chapter, we will mention about nine kings from three different countries in one, in one chapter here. And so some of the names are the same. Some of them sound the same. Try being up here, mentioning all these names and trying to get them straight. And so I have to circle some. I have to put squares around the other one so I can get them right. So I'm going to try to take my time. Hopefully I don't get you more confused than you can be. Um, and so we're in chapter 13 of 2 Kings. Let's cover the first two verses. In the 23rd year of, Jehoha, Je, of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, King of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them, from these sins. King Joash from the southern kingdom, reigned for 40 years. He's the, he's the king that came in when he was seven years old. And he reigned for 40 years. And so we're a little halfway uh, through his reign. And Jehu dies. And Jehu was that ruthless king in the northern kingdom. He was just a commander who ended up ki killing his king in the northern kingdom, and he killed the king from the southern kingdom, Ahaziah. And so now that he's dead, his son, Jehoahaz, steps in. And to no one's surprise, he's following after his dad's footsteps. But he's following the footsteps of all the other kings that have gone before him for the last hundred years. Can you imagine for a hundred years you have evil king after evil king after evil king and this is a constant 
This is what continually is happening. There's this, these evil kings in the northern kingdom. And the crazy thing about it is that God continues to reach out to them. In that time period of these hundred years, we've seen prophets come. We've seen school of ministries, basically, schools of the prophets continue. So in the darkest moments for a hundred years in this country, in this part of the nation, God is still doing work. He still shows up as, as we will see in this chapter once again. God is so patient. You know, as you're looking at this and you're going, man, for a hundred years, these guys have been doing evil. They continue to, to worship the golden calves that Jeroboam, the original king, had set up. And so, well, we mentioned Jeroboam, so there's five kings from the northern kingdom. He's the first one. It is truly hard to break a cycle. And for a hundred years, these kings and these people are introduced constantly to, to worship of Baal and to the high places and to, to these golden calves. One was set up in, in Bethel, the other one in, in Dan, way up north. And so this is always what they've known. They keep on going. And it is hard to break a cycle generation after generation. And I don't know if you've been a part of families in your life where there's always this cycle that's happening. And it goes from generation to generation. And it's almost as if, when can this cycle stop? Because again, there comes a time in people's lives when you're going, enough. Enough is enough. Just because my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my dad were all alcoholics... Can I just break that cycle and I don't have to do what they're doing? Or, or, or this has been our life. Can I break that cycle because it keeps on ruining family after family in our lives? Because again, at one point, some of us have to stand up to the rest of our family or, or our culture or the things that we've grown up doing and say, enough. It's time to break that cycle. And every king from the northern kingdom has had the opportunity to depart from doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of them, because they never forgot that, that the one true living God still reigned over them. They, they had places of worship for the living God. Oh, they built the, 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 the altars for the, the golden calves. But they could not forget their forefathers. They could not forget the law of Moses. They could not forget the Pentateuch, the, 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 the beginning of the, the five books of, the, of, of, of God's law. They could not forget those kinds of things. But they all decided, they all made a conscious decision to not depart from them, from the evil. And it's interesting because we'll see that in the next portion that we read. They could not forget the God of their fathers. Because God kept on sending prophets to them. Some of their sons, even though they were raised worshiping these false gods, they desired to become or to be a part of the school of the prophets 
They had like five different schools in the northern kingdom. And we had prophets like Elijah and Elisha that were powerful, that spoke the word of God to that kingdom. And they had every opportunity to depart from doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And every once in a while, we got a glimmer of hope because they'd come to the king and the king would repent for a time. You see, they understood that God was still there. And so in verse 3, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, the king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in the tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden images also remained in Samaria. So he, God, left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. It says that the, 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 the Lord's anger was aroused against the people in the northern kingdom here. It, it, it's not that, it's not like God only got angry every once in a while. And then he just couldn't control himself and his wrath just, just came out or his anger was just against them that he would let them have it. No, his anger was always at a place where, where he was just so jealous for them, but they kept on basically turning their back on him. At certain times in that history of a of hundred years, at certain times, God would allow his anger to be manifest towards the nation because of the rebellion because things were happening and he just wanted to get their attention back on him. And so there were times that he would turn up the heat on them. You see, he was never satisfied with the evil that they were doing. Never. He was never looking the other way. He is a patient God. He is long-suffering. He suffers long towards his people. And even in their sin, he continues to see them. And look upon them. But there are times that in his anger, the way it's manifest is that he turns them over to to their enemies. He allows the enemy to be used by him to come and bring chastisement to the people, his people that he loves so dearly. Because it says that he, 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 he turned them over or he delivered them he, God, he delivered them. Not like what we think of delivering, 
you know, deliver me from all this craziness. He delivered them into craziness. He delivered them into the hand of, of the king of Syria for, for, for several years because we, we see uh, Haziel, who has been around for a long time, and now his son comes into to reign, Ben-Hadad third. He comes in and he is tormenting these guys. And God is using those kings from the outside to, to bring some judgment upon the nation of Israel because, not because he's so mad at them that, that he just hates them, he loves them so much that he is going to allow them to, to go through this, this heavy trial where people will die and people are going to get hurt. It's a sad commentary because all God wants is their attention. And they have every opportunity to turn. And I could guarantee you not all the people were following after the king and what he was doing. There was people that God was protecting and watching over as well. But he, God, delivered them. Because he's not above allowing the enemy to be used for his purpose. Slap his hand away enough, man. And he, he, he lets you go. Go do it. If that's what you want to go do, go walk in the way, but there's consequences coming. You see, God had continually proven to them that he was right there with them. And every time they slapped his hand away, he would let, let some more stuff happen in their life. Some more trials. We've seen it before. And we see it again here. That God will use other nations to get their attention. And it says in verse 4, So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord. You see, he never forgot that there was a God in heaven. He didn't forget that, even in his wickedness. Even in the evil that he continued to do, he knew that there was a God in heaven who would hear his plea. These northern kings, they knew that they could always call upon God. They knew that. And here's the crazy thing about that whole thing. God would listen. God would listen to them. Now, I don't know if he always came to their rescue. But when they called upon him, when they pleaded with him, he listened to them. And what I find fascinating is that as soon as Jehoiahaz pleads, the Lord listens. And he not only listens, but he sees the oppression that is happening to them. And I'm sure his heart is breaking because that all could have been avoided one way or another if they would have been obedient. But even in their disobedience, even in their wickedness, even in the time of rebellion, he cries out and God acts on their behalf. And we covered this a couple of Sundays ago. That, that, that even when people have disbelief like the guys in the boat and they're scared to death and, and they come and Jesus goes, where's your faith? Why are you so fearful? God still acts on our behalf when we're fearful and when we're faithless. He still acts on our behalf. That's how good God is. 
And in this instance here, Jehoahaz pleads with him and, and he listens. He saw the oppression that was happening against them and he still acts on their behalf. And it says that he gave Israel a deliverer. I, I'm, I'm sure that the repentance that Jehoiah has here has here is genuine. And it could be that right away God began to send deliverers. I, I was reading one of the commentaries and says that the Assyrians, not the Syrians, Assyrians that are up way up north that they were coming down and, and, and were now fighting against Syria on the northern part. And so it's quite possible that they had to, the Syrians had to turn their attention towards the Assyrians up north and had to leave the nation of Israel alone. And in that, they were delivered. Now, that's a possibility. But could it be also that as time passed, Jehoiahaz's sons, his successors, became deliverers in the northern kingdom. Because we see a little later that his sons fought against them and there would be some victories happening. So we don't know the timeline here. If it happened right away that, that, that God delivered them or in time God was delivering them. But it does tell us in verse 5 at the end there, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. When you hear or when you see that phrase, that they dwelt in their tents, it means that they lived in peace for a time. There was peace that came upon them. Now again, I find it fascinating that in our turmoils and in our struggles, because even our own disobedience, when we are battling even against the Lord and pushing his hand away, slapping it away, and just doing what we want to do in, in, in the way we want to do it, that God oftentimes, when we plead, <laughs> when we cry out, when we're going, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm so sorry, that all of a sudden he brings peace into our life because that's who he is. He's the God of peace. And he wanted this kind of peace to be upon them always. And you would think that there would be someone within the kingdom, and there was, there was people, but someone high up in, in, in the administration, someone, even the king, who would finally like, come to his senses and say, you know, every time I do evil in the sight of the Lord, and, our, and, and it's been generational, and we've been doing this, and, and I've known that in the past, that whenever we plead to the Lord, he shows up. You know what? Enough. We're just going to follow the Lord. Everybody, I'm going to make a decree. Everybody follows the Lord from here on out. No more doing evil. You would think that they would eventually come to their senses and say, enough. We've been doing it our own way and we keep on getting hurt and jacked by other nations and God takes his hands off of us. And so you would think that at some point they would get their life straight and go, I just want to serve him and him only because when I cry, he listens. When I'm in despair, he comes to my rescue. When all else has failed and I've done my old thing, he comes and brings me peace when I cry out to him. 
You see, we can look at, at the nation of Israel or the, the, the northern kingdom and say, yeah, how come they don't do that? It's like, how come we don't do that? How come we always end up being like them in a lot of ways? That we end up wanting to do our own thing and God rescues us and he comes to our rescue and he shows us himself strong and then we turn around again and we go right back to those high places, to those things that drag us back. You see, I, I, I love the fact that in the Old Testament, especially through these stories, that can be kind of tedious and kind of a downer, you know, that God reminds me and hopefully he reminds us that we can be just like these people. Because we want to go do our own, our, our own thing and we don't want to depart from some of the things that we used to like doing. And then we cry out, he comes to our rescue and he's there and he brings peace. And then verse 6, nevertheless, they did not depart from their sin. Nevertheless, <laughs> they, they, they just needed God for a quick bailout. I don't know if you've ever been there. <laughs> Lord, please just, just get me through this one, Lord. And as soon as he does, it's like, dude, I'll see you later. It's like the guy that was up on the roof, right? And he stumbles and he's falling down and he's sliding down. And he's going, God, God, save me, save me. And all of a sudden, his overalls catch this nail that's sticking up. Boom, and he stops. He goes, oh, never mind. Nail caught me. I'm good. I'm good, Lord. I don't need you. Right? Because we're crying out to him until something better comes along and all of a sudden we're going, oh no, God, you don't have to bother. This kind of took care of itself. And we forget that God's always ready. When we cry out, he's always ready. It says in verse 7, for he left of the, the army of Jehoiahaz only 50 horsemen. Ten chariots and ten thousand foot soldiers. He, God. God left that. God allowed that to happen. Here was an army who used to be huge that could protect their country. And now it looks like a police force, basically, not a military force. They're not big enough to go fight any other nation, maybe just to kind of keep the peace around town. But the army has gotten devastated and decimated because of their rebellion. And I feel bad for these people who have to serve in, in an army like this because their commander, the people higher up, are the ones that are messing up and sinning and they're getting hurt. Like it happens so often in nations and in, 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 in just in, in places and cities and businesses and in churches even. People continue to do what they want to do, and it's the people that get hurt. See, they became like the dust at threshing, which means that they got blown away, never to be seen again, because that's what happens when, when, when at the threshing, all the dust would be just blown away. Now, as, as we move into verses 8 to, to 13 that I'm going to read to you right now, I just kind of give you a little understanding here. We, we, we kind of get an overview of several kings here from both the, the northern nation and, and a kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it goes pretty quick. 
And, and, and I'm prefacing this because there, there's some names that are the same, but I've kind of changed them. Not, not bad. I'm not changing the word of God. I'm not doing that. Don't, it's like all of a sudden blasphemy. There's a couple of guys, and I'm just kind of, there, there's Joash and jo, Jehoash. And sometimes they use Joash all the time and Jehoash. Jehoash, I will use his name for the guy from the northern kingdom and Joash for the southern kingdom, just so you know, okay? And then some of the names sound the same. So if I mix them up and jack them up, at least you're kind of following along. (laughs) I, I had to circle some and put squares around the other just to try to keep them and try to make sense of them for, for us here. And I want, to, I want to just let you know that verses 12 and 13 are identical in the next chapter, in chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. So, so verses 12 and 13 are kind of a parenthesis, but again, I'll read all the way through. I'll try to take my time. Okay. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiahaz... All that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoiahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 27th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash the son of Jehoiahaz became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash, all that he did and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the books of the or the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam, which would be the third, or the second, sat in on his throne, and Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings. Of Israel. Again, some of these guys' names were the same. I, I switched them. You might have known that or saw that. But again, we, we get a, a, a view of about three, four generations, three generations from the northern kingdom, at least two from the southern kingdom, because Amaziah, Amaziah has not even come on the scene. But for some reason, there's a parenthesis here, and we see all these names. So let's move on from there. Verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Jehoash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, My father, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha 
put his hand on the king's hand. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverer, deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, why should you have, you should have struck five or six times? Then you would have struck Syria till you have destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Elisha, he, he re-enters the narrative here. He, he's back in the story just for a little bit. He's been kind of laying low or doing other stuff since about the ninth chapter. So we haven't seen him much. But now he is back in the storyline here. And this time we read that Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Here, he is now suffering of something that is terminal in his life. And it just goes to show you that even men of God, people who have great faith, will get sick and they will die. And shame on anybody in the Christian community who would say, if you're a Christian, you should never get sick. Nobody in your family should die. Not a brutal death, not a hard death, not any kind of death that, that, that is out of your control. But you see, there's people that do that. And again, you look at somebody like Elisha here, who, who is only second to Jesus of, of miracle making. The guy has done so many stinking miracles, it's ridiculous. And here's a man who trusted in the Lord, who had so much faith in God. He knew that God would come th- through with whatever he, he needed done, and God would do miracle after miracle after miracle with this man. And yet, he comes back into the storyline, and not, not only is he old, because he is old, He's probably close to 80. He's probably been ministering about 50 years, even with his time with Elijah. But now we see that he is, he is dying. And even in his deathbed, he still has the wherewithal to prophesy over the king in the northern kingdom. And so we hear, hear, we hear that, that he is sick with an illness with which he will die. And Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, or Jeho, no, Jehoash. He comes to visit with him. Even though he will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, as we saw in verse 11, he understood that there is a man of God in the nation and that he is sick and that he is dying. And he has enough respect, not just for Elisha, 
but also enough understanding of who God is that he anticipates a great loss here. And so he goes and he says, my father, my father. Showing the, the, the respect, the level of respect that he has for this man who he knows is superior to him as far as spiritual things. And I believe that he is coming in true humility to this man, understanding who he is and what he has done for his, the northern kingdom. Even when he has stepped up and, and, and confronted kings, he understood what this guy was all about and knew that there would be a great loss here. And, and, and he uses the phrase, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel to show that he recognized that in Elisha, and for that matter, the Lord, who was his God, Elisha's God, that, that, that it was the Lord through Elijah that was the real defender of, of the nation. And that the power that, that the northern kingdom would experience from the Lord at times, good or bad, came from guys like Elisha, who stood up against kings like him. Who, who, who warned them about the adversaries that were coming at times. He uses this this, this old prophet to minister to this young king to remind him of who God is still, even though verse 11 tells us again that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That he would do evil in the sight of the Lord. This phrase, the, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel, is the same phrase that Elisha used, to Eli, used with Elijah when Elijah was leaving, understanding the authority that Elijah had at that time. And so in verse 15, and Elijah, Elisha said to him, take the bow and some arrows. And he took the bows and the arrows, and he said to the king, put your hand on the bow. So he put a hand on it, and Elisha put his hand on the king's hand. And what this represented was, again, the bow and the arrow represented authority, it represented power, it represented the wars, and all the might, and all these things that would be happening. And for him, in his deathbed, to, to, to rise up and to put his hand on it with him, in, in, in essence, is saying, God will be with you. God will be with you. Allow him to do these things in your life. And he says, open up the east window. Why the east window? Because Syria was to the east there. And as he was shooting in, into the east, it was proven that he would have victory over Syria. And so here, it's almost like there's this, there's this faith that, that's welling up in, in this man's life. That if you, if, if you put your hand to the plow or to, or to this, this bow and this arrow, God will work on your behalf. God will be with you. And Elisha, basically, 
he, he, he sees this faith of Jehoahaz, Jehoash, and he promises victory to him. And then in verse 18, he says, take the arrows. So he took them and he says, strike the ground. So he struck them three times and stopped. And it says that the man of God, Elisha, Elijah, or Elisha, became angry. You see, he had given them instructions. God's going to give you victory. And he gives them some more instruction, but he doesn't tell them how many times to do this. Maybe hoping that he would take the initiative because if he had five or six arrows that he would strike it. Now, now again, when it says strike, I, it, it could be that he gathered them and struck them like this, or he, he struck them into the ground. More than likely, he got the arrows and he struck them into the ground, just like he let the first one fly. But he stopped at the third one, and, and Elisha's going, why wouldn't you trust God for more? Why wouldn't you trust God with everything that was in your hand? Why did you stop short? And he kind of basically tells them, because you only stopped at three, you're only going to have three victories with Syria. If he would have done more, he would have had more. And I think maybe is it possible that he thought, man, God works on your behalf like that, but he doesn't work on my behalf like that. And yet he, he had promised them, hey, sh shoot, do this. And then he let his faith, this, this king's faith, take over. And when he stopped, he said, oh, you should have done it more. Because God is ready and willing to do above and beyond what you can ask or think. But I don't know if you've ever felt, maybe like this king is feeling right now, it's like, well, he, he would do that for you, Elisha. Because you're a good man. And God hears you. I don't always do good. And he limited God. Man, it was a perfect opportunity for him to trust God with everything. With everything that was in his hand. Use it. He says, ah, maybe not in my life, but your life maybe. Not in mine. And I think oftentimes we defeat or we disqualify ourselves because we can't see ourselves being good enough and how God works in other people's lives. Oh, he'll do that in your life, but he won't do that in my life. And I'm here to tell you, no, man, he's no respecter of persons. You turn to him, and you use what's in your hand, what he's put in your hand. Use it. Take it to the limit. <laughs> Lord, if this is what you put in my hand, I'm going to go for it, instead of shortchanging him. And then in verse 20, then Elijah, Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding band from Moab invaded the land in the spring of, of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. It's like, say, what? What? 
It doesn't give us how long Elisha's been dead here, but he's, his bones are laying in there. And these guys, man, they're already going to bury this cat that's dead. I mean, dead. People are going, well, maybe he was just mostly dead. No, he was dead. And so they take him, and it's like, oh, man, these guys are coming. And, and usually there was a tomb in, in a rock or however, and they probably pushed the, pushed the rock away, and they just kind of like threw him in there. He's dead. It's like, I'm not going to feel it. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, dude, what's up, man? <laughs> well, I don't have respect for the dead. <laughs> you just throw me like a rag doll. <laughs> right? Can you imagine what these guys are, are thinking this man's bones are still active. Even after his death, God is still working somehow through that person. Whoa, are you kidding me? His legacy basically has lived on. There's power still in who he was. And, and could it be, is it possible that, that, that God was using this little incident here to remind the king, I am that powerful that I could use a dead body like that to show you that I could revive you and I could resurrect your nation that is dying. You have nothing now. But I'm powerful enough to bring back from the dead if you allow me to do that. <laughs> Can you imagine? It says in verse 22 to the end of the chapter, and Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor cast them from his presence. Now, Haziel, the king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad II, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which had taken out which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, I'm almost done, defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Guys, for the last several weeks, as we've been kind of covering these kings back and forth, I've been sharing with you about the faithfulness of God. And you know, as we read through these Old Testament stories, as we cover a chapter each time we meet, they're not always happy, <laughs> perky. They're not always up. You know, it's like, man, people are dying all around. Man, the slaughter is crazy. We've been seeing some crazy slaughtering happening. We see kings come and go. We see generation after generation do evil in the sight of the Lord. And how do you put a happy face on that, you know? But this I do know, guys. Because as I was studying this, going, man, Lord, some more craziness in this chapter. 
And, and, and when I get to this point here and I'm looking at it and it says, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them and regarded them. Why? Because he keeps his promises. He had a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so long ago, hundreds, if not a couple thousand years ago. And he says, I will not destroy them completely because of this. Oh, they're going to be taken captive in about another 90 years. They will be taken captive. And they will assimilate themselves up in Assyria. That kingdom will not return, not like the southern kingdom will, from Babylon. But God was gracious to them. Why? Because time was running out. Time was of the essence, and he kept on reaching out to them. And we see devastation after devastation and men wanting to do their own thing all the time. And God still reaches out. God is gracious. He's truly gracious, guys. He has compassion. He's always compassionate. And he regards you and he regards me all the time. Why? Because of the promises. That he would never leave us or forsake us. He would never do that. So he continues to be faithful to the northern kingdom who continually slapped his hand away. He continued to be faithful and show himself even when he had to bring enemies to, to decimate them. To say, when are you going to give up? When are you going to break this cycle and just follow me with all your heart? And don't turn back to the high places. Not to go back to, to the golden calves that were set up by Jeroboam. Why do you continue to follow his example? He was a bad example. And God calls us. He calls us out because he has compassion on us. He's gracious to us and he regards us. Guys, don't give up. I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know what's calling you back at the high places. I, I, I don't know what it is. That, that you're going after, that keeps on letting you down. And every time you cry out to the Lord, He's there for you, isn't He? Just serve Him. Be consistent in serving Him. Why not? He will bless you. He will make His face shine upon you and show you grace, because that's who He is. He's always like that. He's that good, guys. You know, I wanted to change things up because I didn't know how I was going to finish this, this study. And, and again, just kind of like sometimes on a downer going, and everybody died and was slaughtered. Amen, right? <laughs> hey, how about, how about if, 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 if we realize that he is gracious, compassionate, and he regards you because of his promises? Let's just worship. And when we're done, we can maybe go snag some popcorn from the kids back there. I don't know. But Jim, why don't you guys come on up and let's pray. Jesus, I just want to thank you so much. Lord, even as we've covered so many of these chapters, Lord, and we see generation after generation, Lord, and even tonight, Lord, seeing all these kings from the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and even Syria, Lord. We've seen so many of them. Lord, and there was so much that happened in their lives, Lord God. And, and just in this chapter alone, Lord God, we're able to cover so much time 
And yet, Lord God, when we read it, Lord, we see our lives in, in this, Lord. We see, we see the struggles that we go through, just like they did. But Lord, as we finish off here, Lord God, remind us of your graciousness, of your compassion. Remind us of how you regard us, Lord God, and you think about us always. Oh, that we would plead to you, Lord, cry out to you, and that you would deliver us, Lord. Blessed be your name. You are so worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.